Welcome to Complexified, where religion and politics collide with real life. We're your hosts, Amanda Henderson and Lex Dunbar. Each episode, we talk with activists and thinkers about big issues facing us today. We cover all the things that you are not allowed to talk about at parties, starting with religion and politics. We dive into the messiness with compassion and curiosity and always humor. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. Follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts, like and review, and become a part of this movement to let go of the simple answers and embrace the complexity of real life. This season, we're asking how our understanding of God shapes how we navigate change personally and politically. In today's episode, we're going to talk about generational change and belonging. And we're going to ask an expert on both of these things. What happens when belonging gets complicated? I can't wait for you to meet Denise Soler Cox, an award-winning Latina filmmaker and cultural storyteller. Denise is the American-born daughter of first-generation immigrants from Puerto Rico. Growing up first in the Bronx and then a mostly white community further upstate in New York, she never felt like she belonged anywhere. Not white enough and American enough for the suburban community around her, nor fluent enough in Spanish to feel completely Latina. She was a girl and then a woman who felt out of place. So what did she do? She made a film, Being in Ye, all about that sense of being in between. It's amazing. You have to watch it. It was a hit. And today she speaks all over the country about her journey to find a sense of belonging. Denise, welcome. We're so glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited for this conversation. We have been doing a whole season on change, change in our religion, our politics, our bodies, and in our relationships. Your theme as a speaker, writer, and filmmaker is all about belonging. And I think that sometimes this idea of belonging can get simplified. It can be like this Hallmark card, right? We start to think of it as just too simple. But we all know that life can get complicated, and the whole notion of belonging is complicated, especially as we change and as our world changes. And on Complexified, we like to dive into those complications. So that's what we're going to do today. And I want to start with your story. Tell me about the struggle to belong that inspired you to embark on this journey. Sure. So my struggle to belong, first and foremost, I believed was my own. And that's a really important piece to the story because up until I was 26, I couldn't even articulate how my experience with my own belonging because it was invisible to me as an external thing or even an internal thing. I had no words to describe what it felt like not to belong except for that it felt terrible, right? Mm. Until one night at a bar with a bunch of friends in Miami. And it was that night that I realized through 
first a very fun conversation and then a more serious and substantive conversation when I realized that my friends, we were all first gen sitting at the table, uh, were just like me. Not only do they think the same things were funny, but they also struggled in the same ways that I did. And they put into words things that I had experienced that I hadn't up until that point been able to put into words. And it was so profound for me that I, I, it was like a lightning bolt uh, profound. Like the biggest aha moment of my entire life happened that night. What were some of those things that you that you connected on? So first, it was a funny thing. Like we were teasing our families, you know, we're making fun of our parents' accents. That's a classic first gen thing. We don't really talk about it, you know, outside the community, but we're always making fun of our parents' accents too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like the way that they say words, the, you know, the different ways that they kind of mangle expressions, right? Yeah. Uh, and they're really funny. And so we were trading those things. Like, oh my gosh, how do your parents say this? Or this is how my parents say that. And then, you know, just getting a laugh and having a good time. And then someone said, hey, have you ever felt like when you go back to the homeland? Because there were people there whose parents were from Venezuela, from Puerto Rico, from Cuba, from, you know, Guatemala, name a Spanish speaking country. There were about 10 of us. And they said, have you ever felt like you weren't like Puerto Rican enough when you were there? Like your Spanish, even though you feel like it's fluent, they always have a problem with it. Or you just don't feel 100% like you fit in there. And I'd never said those words before. And I, and I said, yes, of course I felt like that. And everyone had our own version of that experience. And it was hearing their experience, agreeing with it, and contributing to the conversation that caused me to realize that I had lived an entire lifetime believing that my lived experience was one way, but it was actually completely another way. Like it was, I'm alone. Not only am I alone, but no one, no one will understand me. <laughs> Like wow. really reserve yeah. the right to be like, this is mine and mine only, right? Adult, I'm 26 years old. And uh, two, I have, I am not alone and I have never been alone. And so the going from complete disconnection to my own identity, right? Not only, and my identity as a Latina, as a Puerto Rican woman, all of those things, but also to myself, went from I am disconnected and no one can understand this. I can't even understand it myself to I am deeply connected. And how that filled me up in a moment is really the origins of all of my work. Yeah. And what did you do with that? Well, I decided that night that I was going to make a movie about it. And Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. And to know me is to know that these kind of things happen to me, right? And so these these are the kind of things that I'll say and share. Um, except for, you know, when it came to this, I had no experience. I had no how. So a lot of times people are like, oh, I really want to write a book or I want to make a movie too, or I want to move across the country or around the world or what have you. And oftentimes the very next thing is, but how? I don't know how, so I'm not going to do it, right? And so me too, you know, except for that hadn't really entered my psyche yet. Uh, at the at dinner at the bar, 
um, what I did was I grabbed napkins and I started writing oh things gosh. down. And I'm like, wait, say that again. And it was like this classic oh. kind of entrepreneurial moment where the idea was literally written on the back of a napkin. And by the time the night ended, I shoved the napkins in my purse, got in my car, and I felt like my whole life was like in front of me, like this this experience of like peace, but also elation. And yeah. like I know what I was born to do, be a filmmaker. I have no idea how, and it doesn't even matter. And as because at the time I was a graphic designer, I didn't even know any, anyone who made a film. Always have loved stories though, and storytelling. And then on my way back to Coconut Grove, that's where I lived at the time in Miami, I always say, you know, the devil angel thing happened. Mm -hmm. you know, and the angels I left at the bar, like amazing friends that believe in me 100%, no matter what, we should all have plenty of them, right? And then the devil showed up and was like, who the hell do you think you are? Like, mm -hmm. you don't have any experience doing this. And until one day, I just 17 years later, couldn't stand myself anymore and just decided I have to start. And I gave myself a full year. And what I said was, if I don't make significant progress, and I don't know why I said that to myself, because I couldn't even measure it because I knew nothing about filmmaking, even after 17 years. So the thing here that's interesting is I never picked up a book. I never went back to school. I never took a course. I never mm. met anyone, never made it my business to meet anyone, never watched a YouTube video never listened to a podcast series, never did anything that it would have to do with a how. I just decided I was the one and I would be the one for a year. And and then after a year, if I felt like I hadn't made enough progress, then I would let it, I would let sleeping dogs lie because they were certainly lying for a long time before. And then what happened was I ha I did make significant progress and a few years later, the film was released. Wow. Amazing. That's a that's a powerful, powerful story. <laughs> so can you tell us about your film? Yeah. So the film is called Being Enya, and Enya is the is the phonetic pronunciation of the extra letter in the Spanish alphabet, the N with a tilde on top. And it was it was really a love letter that I that I made to first gen Latinos born here in the United States. It's the story of the diaspora feeling ni de aquí ni de allá, not from here, not from there. Really capturing it in a film, and you know, oftentimes I, I have to say it's not political, but then you know. But then what isn't political? You know what I mean? Your existence yeah, is yeah, political. Like just yeah. having made the film is activism, right? right. And so, right. Um, and the film isn't about, like a lot of times people would say, oh, is it about dreamers? Is it about uh, immigration? <laughs> no, it isn't. And thank God it isn't because we need a little bit, we need more stories that aren't about those mm -hmm. things too, so that people mm -hmm. understand the texture and breadth of the lived experience of Latinos here, right? Right. right. Uh, but it was it was made to validate really an experience that is very rarely told. It's told more now, especially in different forms of media, um, television shows and whatnot. But back then in 2016, when it came out, it really stood alone as a piece that, that said, this is my experience. And I interviewed a whole bunch of people and kind of touched on a bunch of uh, hot button issues that are contained in that first gen experience, one being language and, um, and had a celebrity or two join me in sharing their lived experience. And so it was made to validate people. Like, you feel like this? Me too. It was it was made to make people feel the way I felt in the bar that night. And what happened since the film came out is, you know, traditional films, they have this big explosive beginning. 
and then they're like, you know, rented on DVD or whatever. Then they're like on Netflix and whatever. This film has only gotten more and more popular. So it's been out now for seven years. And I'm actually flying to England in a few weeks to screen the film to a bunch of uh, in, in, in a conference for British educators and um, people from all over the world that are attending a conference and and the school, um, and you know I've I've received communication from people all over the world who have seen the film and who have told me I'm not Latino but you just told my story because it's oh, it's wow. the story of the diaspora leaving the mm-hmm. homeland and starting a new life and creating an identity from from pieces you know. And, and yeah. inventing oneself. Wow, yeah. that's beautiful. Thank you. It's so good. We'll have a link to it in our show notes and everyone can watch it and, and share. It's really beautiful. Thank you. In terms of vulnerability and community making, um, what's the risk been like for you in that? What does that look like? Yeah, well, a lot of tears. That's what it really looks like. <laughs> From the outside looking in, it's like me crying a lot. And, um, you know, I just showing up here today, I told Lex I'd been crying with my book coach before this because I've never cried more in this than in this 10-year section of my life than any other time. And I've had some serious tragedies happen in my life, but excavating all that I packed away, never to see the light of day kind of stuff is the stuff that mm-hmm. I decided to share in the film. And then um, you know, screening the film in front of physical people, audiences feeling this incredible sense of safety and freedom to ask me anything they want publicly um, has also been a huge challenge, uh, but like in the very best of ways to the question, Lex, about authenticity. I've, I've often felt on a stage, I could answer that like kind of like a BS answer, like a make me look really great, polished and shiny answer, or I can just be real. And screening yeah. 44 is a screening um, that happened at LinkedIn headquarters because I was counting them because I, I couldn't believe how many places I was being invited uh, to speak at and to screen the film at and to do Q&As at and to keynote at. And so at screening 44, someone stood up and asked a really provocative question and I, I paused and I that's what I heard in my head. Like, are we telling the truth <laughs> or are we going to wow. say something else? Right. I decided to tell the truth. And what happened was, I, you know, like um, when you cry, sometimes this happens. Sometimes I cry and I have to put my two fingers under my eyes and then the tears <laughs> just like, this creates like a stream. And I'm like, I can't stop crying. Like, but this helps. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I was standing there like this and I'm like, I'm just going to, I'm going to be really honest with you. And out of all the screenings that ever happened, that particular screening felt like it transformed the way that I was going to be from that point forward. Mm. What was that provocative question that you were asked? So somebody stood up, and this is actually in a chapter in my book. He um, he stood up and he said, I'm from where you're from. He watched my whole movie, mind you. Oh, wow. And so in my movie, I share a lot of stuff. But he says, I'm from where you're from. And I feel like you're not telling the whole story. <gasps> and I was like, <gasps> Whoa. you know, it's like when someone calls you a liar and you're also lying. And it's like, how did you know? <laughs> right. Wow. right. And you're on stage. Right. And, and, and there's uh, you know, hundreds of people looking at you. <laughs> what, is, what did he mean by that? Well, what he meant was he knew that things must have been harder 
than how I depicted it. And he was right. And when I say I was a liar, it was a liar by a lie by omission, you know, telling, having a chance to make a documentary about my life and then leaving out some critical pieces, you know, um, to people that have really been through some hard stuff, they're going to, they're going to they sniff it out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what did you say to him? Well, what I said was, um, as a matter of fact, you know, I said, you're right. And it was a creative choice uh, to mm. leave uh, these two things out. And uh, one was about a sexual assault um, that happened to me freshman year of college. And the other one was a domestic violence instance that happened um, where my father almost killed my mother right in front of my right in front of me and didn't because I showed up. And, um, and that was so like, uh, you know, this, this, this work is like, it gives and it gives and it gives, right? But it give the cost is, you know, and I'm already getting emotional now. Yeah. The cost is like being seen. You know, mm -hmm. uh, with all the accompanying fears mm -hmm. on my part, right? Because if I tell you that, then you know so much more about me and people perceive this to be an inequity. And if you know more about me, then I'm weak, which was how I live my life. And it's really how I was raised. Los trapos sucios, there's a saying in Spanish, los trapos sucios se lavan en la casa. We wash our dirty laundry at home. And so mm -hmm. no one should ever know these terrible things that I witnessed or things that happened to me or to members of my family, right? And what I found was in all the terror of sharing that day, um, something was unlocked. And it was this crazy sense of power and agency that I'd never personally experienced and like this freedom with my own story. And Screening 44 also is when the volume of people began to share with me secrets. It's it's never not scary for me to share my truth, right? Right. And right. it's bizarrely, um, unpredictably powerful for me to feel totally seen. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I we have a very similar saying uh, in Black community. You know what happens in the house stays in the house. Mm. And um, as a person who is, you know, I'm working on memoir and all that, oh. how do you navigate the complexity that we have in non-white communities of family honor and telling the truth, right? And and holding both of those in tension. How does that feel in your body? Um, how do you work through it? So, what, and so when you say family honor, do you mean like... Um like preserving that truth because it's not only my truth or, or, or like, because it might pull them down as well or perceived. Not just pull them down, but in the ways that our families, because of the, the sayings, right? What happens in the house, stay in the house. We don't need to be telling all these white folks our business, right? Like, um, because of that, there is, I find myself, and maybe you don't experience this, but I find myself struggling with how do I still honor my story and my people while at the same time saying some real messed up shit has happened even with my people and among my people. 
So I totally get what you're saying. And I often think about this and especially, you know, committing as you are with your memoir that you just mentioned. And for me as well, the stories that I'm choosing to share in my book, it's uh, this fear of being misinterpreted. You know, it's, I kind of feel like it's in that category. And like, if I share the truth, like how, how, what's my relationship with the truth? My experience has been when I share my truth, it's, it's, um, especially amplified, you know, on a stage, it frees people up. Like I have never seen, it goes against anything I've believed to be true, which is robbing people, stripping power. Um, because I was so, you know, really was raised to believe it was going to take away my power. And I know what it feels like when someone speaks to me, um, in a condescending way, someone with power and privilege. And I know that exchange when someone seems to know something about me and then they posture of I'm more powerful than you, but that is a lie. And and how I know it's a lie is how it unlocks people live, in person, every single time. And I have hundreds of stage experiences to prove this, meaning enough people come up to me afterwards. And this is my barometer. They'll share something with me, something terrible, some secret. Uh, and then, you know, by liberating themselves with me, the safe person, right? That feels like a friend or like a cousin or something like that to them. They're one inch closer, one step closer to getting help or knowing that this is not a deficiency. This happened yeah. to you. I feel like mm-hmm, that's what I did mm-hmm. with this film. And I took the mess and uh, made it a message and continuing to do that with my book. And it frees people. And something that frees people has is wrapped in power, is made of power. And someone who gleans power from knowing or using someone's truth is fake power. I love that. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that question. You have done a lot of keynotes and talking to communities who invite you in to talk about DEI as a Latina woman and across different um, identities. How do you navigate that across racial difference with an audience who might be predominantly white? Yeah. So if, if, you know, since I'm being totally honest, it's terrifying. Like oftentimes I'll, on these, I'll do pre-calls with my clients and sometimes they get a good answer. Uh, Sometimes they say they can't answer, but I'll always ask how diverse is the audience, you know? And I'm like, I know you can't give me specific numbers, you know, like how many Latinos, I mean, like you can't give me a breakdown, but can you tell me, is it mostly people of color, half people of color? Like, how's mm-hmm. the male, female? Like, what's the, mm-hmm. give me like a sense of them. Because then I, it does give me permission to uh, bring a little, a different side of myself um, when I know that there are more people of color in the room. It does help. And it also helps in my internal conversation, which is they're not going to get what I'm saying. If the room is too disproportionate and there's only a few people of color and everybody else is white, they are not going to get what I'm saying. And that is my that is like the devil angel mother, right? And I'll call that one the devil because that's also wrong, but that is my first thought. And that is what kind of guides me and guides my fears before I transcend them. <laughs> and so, and then as I'm, you know, getting myself emotionally ready to get on stages, I have to remember you know, I am brought in oftentimes using DEI budgets. And I feel like if there was like a love budget, 
that's really where uh, the money should come from. <laughs> that's what every organization needs. <laughs> love leadership budget. That's what, right. you know, because to me, my work is about love and self-leadership. And if we want to, like if we're ready for it, to lead, to lead is to be a masterful at self-leadership, right? And then all of a sudden people follow because we've, you know, we're on the the the, the journey of self-leadership creates leaders, you know, and when I say lead, and I'm committed to creating spaces where people can belong, which means to me, I'm adding love in this space. Because when I add love, I can extend something more to them so that they feel pulled into this space. So how do I reconcile the the real DEI and the fact that it's not called love and leadership and all that stuff is I source a belief in my heart, which is the same belief I had to source when I made the film, which was terrifying um, because it's like, here's my heart. Let me open it for you. Let me tell you how I see the world in the hopes that you'll feel less alone because I'm assuming that you and I are the same, right? That was the assumption in the film. I also have to make that assumption from the stage. Let me open my heart. Let me share with you what I've learned since I made this film. And I'm going to keep it open uh, so I can share this stuff with you so you can see inside my soul because fundamentally, I do believe we're the same. And so that transcends a lot of vernacular thrown around in DEI. And a lot of times people are like, this is very different than what I thought I was coming to. People that are, I'll call them my people, people of color, <laughs> will say that, mm -hmm. right? And they'll be like, this was refreshing. This was awesome. Mm -hmm. And then people outside my community, outside people of color. And I also know that we all know pain. If we're human, we know pain. And not like to bring the vibe and the energy down, but sometimes it has to be when I'm up there scared, wondering if my message will communicate, I have to remember at the very least, I know pain, they know pain, we both know pain. And for whatever reason, that that level of understanding their humanity helps me to speak the words that I have planned to say. And then mm. people out of the community will say, I have never seen a DEI presentation like this before in my life, you know? Mm -hmm. And they'll say, I can't believe it, but I actually learned something. Or I had no idea that this was actually happening with people. And it basically they're saying, I have compassion where I didn't have compassion. I didn't realize I could empathize, but now I do. One of the things I think is really fascinating about your film and the work that you're doing is that you are building this sense of belonging with people on the other side of the world, uh, all over the place who are so different. And it is such a deep feeling of connection when, this is my experience, when, you, when I open myself up to someone and they also see themselves and, and I am seen and they are seen. And this it's so powerful. It's hard to communicate the power of it. And I also wrote a book called Holy Chaos a couple years ago and have had those kinds of experiences as I've shared some personal stories that are in the book. And I wrote about hard things, you know, my own view and perspective and the ways that I have grown and changed over the years. And that has opened up space for connection with people who I wouldn't have expected. But at the same time, my own family, and I grew up in a very conservative, religiously and politically community, 
some of those folks have had a real, uh, have had real struggle with my book and my perception and my memories, uh, specifically even my own family. Mm-hmm. And that's been really hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I noticed that when I go back to those folks, the people that I should feel this deep sense of connection and belonging, and I want to, that it feels like I have changed so much that I no longer belong with them in the same ways that I find I belong with people that I'm just meeting. Can you share about your experience of that? What is it like to go back to your parents, your hometown, those places where you originally uh, came from? Yeah. So I, so such a great, great question. And it just, it, I think the first thing I'm going to say is for my entire life, I thought, well, my, you know, that show, The Munsters, <laughs> mm-hmm. how they had the cousin, like the normal cousin, right? Yeah, I always yeah. identified with her. I was like, that's me. That's so weird. <laughs> you know, like, why do I love her the most? Uh, uh-huh. That has never changed um, since I, you know, so that for a while I felt bad that I identified the most with her. And it wasn't because she was white. It was because she was different. And I would say maybe the typical normal at that time compared to her family of, you know, vampires or whatever. I always felt like the different one, A. Um, And B, I think about the roles that we take on, you know, the unquestioned roles that we take on as, as family members, right? And it's not, it's not, uh, like a judgment. It just is. It just is that we take on these roles. And then as we get older and especially more educated and more introspective, and a lot of my introspection happens in community as I hear other people in their own, you know, sharing like what you just did. I also, it's a mirror for myself and my own lived experience. And so it's more, if I have changed and I hope that I have, right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I have become more me. I am more me, the closest to me that I was when I was a little kid now than ever before. More free, more silly. I wasn't as deep, right? I wasn't as self-aware. I wasn't as, I don't know, but I'm more, I'm more me. And so, um, and so, yeah, unfortunately that does mean that I recognized that there were patterns, painful, hurtful patterns in my own family that I had tolerated. And the the metaphor that I use is that I was kind of asleep to, you know? Hmm. And I think that we all have this experience of being asleep completely unbeknownst to us. But once we awaken, you can't unring the bell. And so I can never see things differently than the way that I see them once my eyes are open to them. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so my place where I should belong now I realize is with my husband and my kids and family that feel like friends, my chosen family, and absolutely with people I'm blood related to still. But unfortunately, some of my relationships um, have changed for such a long time. I would say the better part of my adult life, I spent wishing things were a different way. I would say very specifically with the relationship I have with my mom. And if you see the film, you know that my father died when I was very young and my closest sibling also died an unrelated just a few years after my dad died. So I had a lot of loss and death in my uh, formative years. And I spent a lot of time wishing things were different with the people that 
were alive, mm. but they weren't and they're yeah. not. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. I'm 52 years old and they're not. And yeah. so there's something really powerful about saying, yeah, you know what? It's okay. It's okay with me. It's sad and it's, it's deeply sad, right? And I've made, or I guess continuing to make peace with the truth that I didn't, I didn't receive by birth like that beautiful, special relationship that I wish that I had. But the beautiful thing that I do have is a chance to recreate what I wish that I had with the two beautiful daughters that I was blessed to have. So that's the way that I look at that. And I can kind of create those relationships with what, you know, with the kids that I have versus the child that I was and am. That's powerful. And just yeah. being able to create your own community um, and still grieve, right? Um, what we wish we had. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. I actually did an event last October. Invariably, someone will ask me, especially if there are a lot of Latinos in the group, people will ask me, what does my mother think about the movie? Mm -hmm. Like it just, you know, <laughs> and the movie, I didn't even cross any big lines, but you know, there's layers uh, and levels to what people think is okay and not okay. And, um, and so someone will ask me, and I remember um, it was my birthday and I was doing an event on my oh. birthday, which is a bad habit that I've been in. But my birthday <laughs> is during Hispanic Heritage Month. And so it's like the most busy time and there's a lot of opportunity. And so in any case, I, I was on a four city tour and I did an event. I was in Tallahassee and someone said, what does your mom think? She must be really proud mm. of you. Mm. And I said, actually, my mom doesn't talk to me anymore. And today's my birthday. And oh. it's so it was such a weird juxtaposition. And then what happened was the audience, like, you know, standing in front of people for a living is the wildest thing because there's like these feelings that energy that kind of comes from groups. And it's all of a sudden this group just turned into like this loving and like created the most oh. loving space for me. And they were like, can we, you know, we want to sing you happy birthday and we want to know if you ever, you know, they just transformed into these loving people. And as a reminder to me, like, that's just how it is. That's facts. That is facts. She's not talking to me. Today's my birthday. And there's still lots and lots of love for me out there and lots and lots of love for others who believe it's also gone and who wished yeah. and pined for it because it never really was there in the way that I needed it, you know? Mm -hmm. And that part's so key, I think, when thinking about our families and creating communities. It's like, I find myself, I have a very complicated relationship with my mother and whatever, but I find myself also being like, but what actually does love mean? And if I'm not being seen for who I am, am I longing for a love that I've never actually had, right? And like having to deal with that. So, so thanks for sharing that and bringing that up. It resonates. Yeah. Those questions though. <laughs> I mean, like such good questions. Yeah. It's funny. I've had people ask that multiple times. What do your parents think of your book? And it's, it's interesting where that comes from for folks. And I wonder if it comes from their own assumptions or their own pain 
And I think that we often assume that other people have this great relationship with their parents, especially people who are on stage and and look successful and you think everything must be great. And and so creating that opening and and I talk a lot about religion and politics and there's not much that divides families more than religion and politics or abuse and violence. That's the mm. other things. When I also say, yeah, my family didn't like the book, it's been very difficult. And it opens up for other people as well. This because we we all know at some level that sense of grief and disconnection that we didn't have. The upbringing that we wished that we had. And I don't know if it's TV or what, that we think that other people have this. I I don't know anyone who has had this magical (laughs) thing. (laughs) But then somehow I think that I can create that for my children. There's the other check. Um, And I love how you said, Denise, that yes, we do accept that we didn't have that, that mother, that nurturing that we needed at some level. And we have this chance to build that relationship either with our children or with the chosen community that we we live in. And I find myself also trying to navigate that space. Like I don't want to live in a place of fear of hurting my children mm. in some way and recreating the patterns that I experienced. And so I work really hard to assure that my daughters and my son are loved and feel a sense of belonging regardless. And at the same time, holding grace for myself, knowing there's always going to be struggle and disconnect in our family relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's levels to it, you know, like there's some where it's like, it, it, there's some where I would, I would put that in the normal amount of, of uh, you know, like I asked my daughter the other day, like how she would characterize our relationship. Mm. And uh, because I we had gotten into an argument and I'm like, oh, like I just feel like I argue with her a lot like lately. And, and I don't want her to look back at her childhood and think, my mom and I argued all the time, you know? And so <laughs> I'm like, how would you characterize? Would you, on a scale of one to 10, would you say we are, you know? And she goes, we argue a lot, but we also love each other. And uh, and I'm like, you think that we argue a lot? And she goes, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, the only thing that matters is how she feels, right? Yeah, so yeah. I'm like, well, what about this? And she's like, no, it just, it does feel like a lot. And, uh, and I'm like, but do you, are you, do you feel like we always end in a good spot or, you know, that we, that you feel heard and that mommy loves you for reals and all those things. And she's like, yeah, mommy, you're my favorite mommy, you know, you know, that helped me, but like, yeah, I don't want to mess it up either. And my humanity does it every day. I feel like, and my kids even know, like, I just don't want you to have to go to therapy for this. So please let mommy clarify (laughs) what I meant here. (laughs) (laughs) I know you're going to end up in therapy for something. For something. Thing, but not this thing. <laughs> I love it. And there is this generational like doing better, doing better. Yeah. Than than we had doing better. And Alex and I were just having a conversation about this yesterday because I was talking about a conversation with my daughter and my daughter, my middle daughter and I have a very emotionally close relationship and she's in her first year of college and she's testing the waters of not telling me every single thing. And it's really healthy and it's really hard as mom. And I'm like, wait, 
you tell me everything. And so she she drew a boundary and I asked her, you know, are you dating anybody? And those questions that moms ask. And and she said, I was, and but I don't I don't want to talk to you about it right now. And she gave a little oh, smirk cool. and she I said, What? You tell me everything. And she said, I'm trying something new. Oh wow. And I said, I love you and I'm so I'm so grateful and I trust you. You've got this. Mm-hmm. And and Lex and I were joking, like, I'm doing better. I'm doing better. We're, we are, like, growing, learning how to live in these relationships because they're complicated, and that's the best we can do, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and the fact that she just felt comfortable telling you that, that I would never have felt comfortable. Yep. To, yep. I would have just been like, Zip. I just I would have lied. <laughs> yeah, I'm not same, same. Like exactly. Like just like not even going there. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. So like, so exactly. so unsafe to even say to draw the boundary. There are no boundaries, you know. Yeah. Denise, this has been so, so great. Is there anything before we wrap up, anything that you wish we sh- would have asked you that we didn't that you'd like to share with us in our audience? Yeah. Thank you for asking. I can't believe we're wrapping so soon. I feel like I we just got going. I know. We uh, could go for hours. <laughs> so the the one thing a lot of times people want to know, what am I working on now? And, um, and so I was approached by a major publisher and asked if I wanted to write a book. And so, um, so I am and have been working on that. And the thing is, I, from the outside looking in authors, it looks a lot easier than what it really <laughs> is. <laughs> So I bow down to you. You have so much more of my respect. Like I had no idea. And uh, so I felt like for the last year, I've been working through a lot of stuff and I have a draft of something that will never see the light of day, but it's stuff that I needed to write. Like that draft that's like just my pain, maybe my pain draft, you know? And then now I'm working on, uh, and actually almost done, very excited to be at the tail end of my book proposal that is all about secrets. And so circling back to what I said about Screening 44 and this phenomenon that happened after the film was screened. And really now, even if the film isn't screened and I just talk on the stage, at least one person will come up to me afterwards and share some deep secret that they've either never shared with anyone else or very few people. And uh, and it, and at first I didn't know what to do with them because I felt like I hadn't, it wasn't a fair trade because I did leave those two secrets out of the film. And, uh, and then I realized this was a future calling and telling me like you, they're giving you this stuff to hold and you're an artist and you need to figure out something to do with them. Not, and it's not that I'm telling their secrets. It's more that I, I began to understand I need to pay attention to why this is happening and what's going on in my community and why are people putting these two things together, an inability to experience belonging in the places and spaces that I want to belong, i.e. professional aspirations, artistic pursuits, uh, some other vocation other than what I'm doing with my life, some other way of being, some other woman or man or some other expression of myself that I am not expressing mm-hmm. and then immediately telling me a secret. So mm. like the secret was in the way. Hmm. Wow. You wow. know, the secret was the why. An obstacle. It, yeah. yeah. And so for me it was, I don't, I don't know how to make a movie. Right. I had a woman come up to me and say, I, 
I really, what I really want to do, like I work in whatever department at this company, what I really want to do is be an author. And I'm like, well, what do you want to write about? Well, I actually have the story. I just can't write it until my mother dies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, just, I literally <laughs> just stopped saying that like last year. Are you I, I'm, I'm so, I'm not lying to you. I just, I would always say until my mom and my grandma dies, I, all of this will stay in the journal. Um, so I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I was like, what are you going to write about? And she said, being the child of a formerly incarcerated person. And I was like, woman, that needs to be published today. Now, like, today. I, mm-hmm. We cannot wait for that. That is so important to share. So that was what was in the way. And I have heard so many iterations of that in so many different ways. And so it's no longer, I don't know how. It's just like I literally can't because of the secret that I don't want mm. you know anyone to know. I took those secrets and I looked at my community and I um, realized if I could share some of the things I didn't share in the film and like make it an even trade, right? Like to for the secrets that have been shared to me. And if I could give those and say, listen, for example, this, like there are secrets that I kept around things that happened to my body, secrets that I've kept around my relationship with my mom, secrets that I've kept around my inherited trauma, around um, success and money. And if I could share a little bit of mine and then tell you a little bit about what I think about those things, right? then maybe I could help build a bridge and inspire someone to transcend that. And in whatever way that looks for them, whether it's they tell someone else besides me, right? They go get professional help. And really, I would say the highest aspiration is creating art because I think art is the absolute pinnacle of expression of our pain. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, the offering of art is I'm is to let me know and remind me I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And that's the best way to transmute it, right? Except for that it's but the first thing is we gotta tell one other person besides me. <laughs> and then so you know, go beautiful. on that journey. Yeah. It's so beautiful because the way that you are speaking about that and, and living it is that it's a dance and it's a process and it's thoughtful. And it's creative. Yeah. My greatest hope for the book is is delivering a reminder that of agency that we have, that we have had it. I'm not the deliverer of agency. I'm a knock, knock, let's all wake up here. We're all snoozing, you know, <laughs> dreaming of things that we want to do and be and contribute to the world. First, we have to wake up, right? And I think that we were hypnotized by something else and we just kind of surrendered to it. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Like I remain hypnotized to, to some parts of my power. Any place in my life where I don't experience power because I'm hypnotized in a belief that I don't have it. And the book, I want to be a catalyst to wake people up in whichever way, whichever secret, you know, is holding them back and that they're asleep to that they would wake up and take action. And to me, yes, I think art, music, painting, sculpture, uh, all, you know, writing, honestly, any kind of media is like the greatest expression of, of our healing. And yes. also the greatest way to heal, the greatest avenue of healing as well. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much, Denise. This has been so much fun. I do wish that we could keep on talking because it's, it's wonderful. Likewise. I'm grateful to get to know you more. Oh, likewise. Thanks so much for the 
for the quality of this conversation. It's very rare that I get a chance to speak at this level. This is my favorite level to speak about these ideas on. And so it's been really a really awesome experience. I knew from listening to past episodes that all three of us are cut from the same cloth as far as what fascinates us and what we like to throw around and yes. catch. And, uh, and so I really appreciate that you gave me a chance to engage in this conversation with you today about what I get to do for a living. I have chills. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us for resources and ideas, links to our TikTok and social media, and to find the link for Denise's film, Being Enye, her writing, speaking, and her upcoming book, visit our website in the show notes. And if anything in this conversation inspired you, please share it with a friend. That is the very best way to support us. Complexified is presented by the Institute for Religion, Politics, and Culture at Iliff School of Theology. Working hard behind the scenes are our engineer, Andrew Perella, producer Elaine Appleton-Grant, Tina Basir, and the rest of the team at Podcast Allies. I'm Amanda Henderson. And I'm Lex Dunbar.